uh, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be more like Jesus. What a great service we had last Sunday morning, didn't we? Yes? I can, hear, I can see some nodding and some smiles. Wasn't it so good to hear those testimonies, those stories of people who have met with Jesus, people who started out on a relationship with him and who've seen a change beginning in their lives as they've set out on that Christian journey, people whose faith is still fresh and vibrant. And what a reminder to those of us who have been on the journey a while a reminder to keep our relationship with Jesus fresh, not to let our Christian life grow stale, mundane, routine, predictable, dull. Because we have a God whose mercies are new every morning and who wants to walk with us and surprise us each day. One of the lovely things about this letter to the Philippians is that while it does contain many strands of Christian doctrine and spiritual advice for the church, it's also deeply personal. We've already learned that it was written at a time when Paul was under arrest. Everything else in his life and in his ministry had been stripped away. And Paul's future and life itself was hanging in the balance, way out of his own control. And his testimony was one of knowing the joy of the Lord, despite being in such a place of suffering. And this letter, I think, gives us an insight into Paul's own story of his love, his deep love for Jesus and his love for the believers at Philippi who he describes at the very beginning of this, uh, this letter as his partners in the gospel. You know, I was chatting to Jill, Jill Carr, before the service last week, and she was just so thrilled to see in those who were taking part the fruits from Alpha. And the Apostle Paul knew that same sense of joy, that joy of a spiritual parent to those who are young in the faith. It was Paul and his companions that first brought the gospel to Philippi, where they met an influential businesswoman called Lydia, and she, along with her praying friends, embraced the gospel. And she was baptised with her whole household, and she welcomed Paul and those with him to stay in her home. Because, you see, the Lord had already prepared her, and there is evidence uh, from Acts and other writings, that she became one of those partners with Paul. And Philippi was believed to be the first place in Europe where Paul formally preached and saw a church established, a church where women were included in the leadership. It was a church that was so very dear to his heart and so little wonder that it's a letter of joy, joy in those early Christians as well as joy in the Lord. And in the very first part of the letter, Paul wrote, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. But it is a partnership. It's a two-way process. At the end of this passage, we read that Paul's greatest longing for these Christians who he loved so much was that they should become blameless, pure, children of God, 
without fault in a crooked generation, that they should shine like stars in the universe. And you know, it's, it's ever so easy for us as Christians to critique the values of the post-Christian world, the culture that we're living in. It's easy for us to, to find ourselves passing judgment on a world that seems to have overthrown so many of the godly principles that we hold dear. It's easy for us to get caught up around you know, societal issues that we feel passionately about. But the real question that Paul is raising is not how dark is the darkness that surrounds us, but rather how brightly are we shining? And so as he writes this affectionate letter, he reminds the Philippians and us as the readers that as our relationship with Jesus deepens, it's so important that we grow, that we grow to be more like him, more like him in our character and in our disposition. The passage starts saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, or to put it another way, the one thing I would stress is this, your behaviour must match up to the gospel of the king. But does that just happen when we start to believe? Can we flawed human beings become more like the Lord we love and serve so that people see him in us? As we unpick the passage, there are some key, key themes, I think, that will perhaps help us to understand just how much our behaviour matters. We need to become more like Jesus, but in order to do so, we have to understand a few things that, that Paul sets out. First of all, that joy is not the same as happiness that we need to learn not to be intimidated, that we need to actively, actively seek unity together, only possible if we prefer others above ourselves. We must act with humility and follow Jesus' example of servanthood. And all of this, of course, is completely contrary to our natural inclinations as men and women. Unless, unless God through the Holy Spirit has begun a good work in us and we give him the full reign to complete it. We live in a culture that confuses joy with happiness. From every side we're bombarded with images of things that will guarantee that happiness. We associate happiness with accumulation, the accumulation of material things, the accumulation of our successes or the successes of our children, the accumulation of experiences. Apparently the retail trade is in real trouble because instead of buying things, we're buying experiences. The accumulation of friends, so-called, and many more. And all of these things, we think, can add to our personal portfolios of happiness. 
And social media perpetuates the myths that everyone else is living a life of uninterrupted happiness, success and popularity. But what happens when some or all of those things that make us feel good about the lives we live, the people we are, are stripped right away as they were for Paul? What when some aspects of our lives begin to feel like a prison? When things become a struggle? When there's no escape? When we suffer hardship? When we lose those that we love or are afflicted by illness? It's so easy to ask why, why me? So easy to slip into grumbling. What when walking worthy of the gospel of Christ means we have to make some really difficult choices? We have to sometimes confront unrighteousness. But that could mean being misunderstood or judged or ostracized. What then? Where is our joy? What about standing firm in our Christian calling in the face of opposing voices Contrary calls upon our lives. Paul speaks in verse 28 about not being afraid or not being intimidated. And last week, Gareth spoke about the things that can stop us from sharing our faith. And Paul picks up that very same theme here. He's basically saying, don't let opponents of the gospel intimidate you. And from Paul's day until now, there have been plenty of peoples and institutions and regimes who have been determined to stamp out the Christian message, to eradicate the name of Jesus from the world. We see this blatantly, don't we, in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, parts of Nigeria, and many, many other places. Places where it's incredibly risky to be a Christian. But what about here? Don't underestimate the powerful forces of secularism and skepticism within our own culture. Forces that are perpetuated through the mainstream media and also through academia. You know, when I was an inspector of church schools, I used to go in and I always used to spend the greater part of my day talking to and listening to the children. And I would always ask them their thoughts about God and faith. And I had some of the most wonderful responses. But in one particular school that I went to, I was totally unprepared for the clear and articulate and cogent arguments that were given to me by a group of 10 and 11-year-olds in defence of atheism. And when I talked to the head afterwards, it turned out that their parents were all academics in the local university nearby. In contrast, we often use a local taxi firm where many of the drivers are Muslims. And we have had many conversations about faith. And I confess, I find it so much easier to talk about my faith with people already, who already have a vocabulary of faith, a literacy of faith. So much easier than with people who are skeptics. But Paul tells us not to be frightened by anyone who in any way opposes the Christian faith. 
And he warns us that we have to accept that if we follow the Christian path, we will sometimes be out of step, out of step with people who don't know him. And that may bring misunderstanding and hostility and for some even persecution. But he says that if our joy is in the Lord, then the tough stuff of life should not dampen it down. It shouldn't give us right cause to, to grumble or to complain. Because he reminds us it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And perhaps that's an aspect of the gospel that we don't always articulate fully enough. Because we do have to count the cost of following the one who paid the greatest price. Moving on in the letter, much as thank you, much as he loved this young church, Paul wasn't blind to attitudes and behaviours that were part of it. Attitudes and behaviours that were perhaps stopping those young believers from growing more like Jesus. Selfish ambition and vain conceit were the words used. Perhaps these were the barriers to greater unity and further growth into maturity. And yet even in highlighting this, Paul's writing doesn't carry the tone of censure or admonition, but rather just his intense longing to see the people he loved deeply set those attitudes aside and instead grow in the ability to demonstrate tenderness, compassion, humility. As C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I recently heard a preacher say, the greatest enemy to the people of God can be the people of God, the enemy within. Self-promotion, conceit, ambition can ruin a church and be deeply damaging to its members. Tom Wright reminds us that things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years, saying that in any church there can be people with very different theological perspectives on certain issues, people with a whole range of preferences about worship style. There can be shadows and hidden resentments from years ago that can simmer away beneath the surface. Personality clashes, discomfort with a particular leadership style and arguments about the things that are actually peripheral can all damage our unity and leave people discouraged or disaffected. And we need to learn how to disagree. Disagreement can be healthy. Stops us being monochrome, dull. But we need to learn to disagree with grace so that we learn from one another and build one another up. We know, don't we, that one thing that turns people away from Christian communities is a lack of authenticity on the part of believers. Behaviour matters. It's alleged that Gandhi gave serious consideration to the Christian faith and was drawn to Jesus, but he turned away 
after being turned away himself because he was neither white nor high caste. He is reported to have said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. For such a thing to have been said about the Philippian church would surely have broken Paul's heart. For it to be said about any church must surely break God's heart. We know, don't we, that much damage has been done in churches and missions of all denominations as they have been shamed by the revelations of abuse that have come to light in recent years. They've come to light because more and more victims and and survivors have felt able at last to speak out with confidence, perhaps for the first time, knowing that their stories will be believed. And while the spotlight has been on sexual abuse, there are many other forms of abuse that are deeply damaging. And we need to remember that any form of abuse is an abuse of power. You might not think you have any power at all, But if you're involved in any form of ministry in church, you're in a position where people trust you and consider you to be safe. And if we fail to walk humbly and to look on the interests of others rather than ourselves, any one of us is capable of misusing or abusing our power and influence in a way that hurts others. There are those here who in years past have been in churches where spiritual authority has been misused, where those in leadership have exercised coercive control. And we should give grateful thanks that for many people, this church has offered acceptance and a time to heal. But we should also be aware that many people are so deeply damaged by such experiences that they quit church altogether and never find healing. That must break God's heart too, and it should break ours. There is only one solution to the issues of the human heart, to the flaws of our character, to the difficulties within churches, and that is total surrender to Jesus. To fix our eyes on him and seek only to model our attitudes, our disposition, and our behaviour on his. It's only through honest self-reflection, through the work of the Holy Spirit and perseverance, that we can become the people he wants us to be. The words of Jesus and the gospel message of Paul are both completely countercultural. Satan grasped at the chance to subvert God's order, and Adam grasped at the chance to be like God, knowing good and evil. Sadly, many of our world leaders today are a caricature of what God intended leadership to be. In God's kingdom, the ruler must be the servant. And Paul holds up this model for each and every one of us in this beautiful poem that is at the centre and heart of this letter. It's one of the most profound testimonies of how divinity and humanity mingle together in the person of Jesus. He talks about our relationships and how in our relationships we must have the mindset of Christ. 
the very nature of God he had, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. No, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. And it is from that place of humility that God exalted him to the highest place. It is because of that that we and the whole creation should bow the knee, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord, but he's our Lord. Those few verses shine a light onto the whole doctrine of atonement and salvation. The eternal Son of God became human, and in one act of self-giving and sacrificial love, he laid aside his divine privileges, he took the form of a slave, and he died under the weight of the world's evil. In another letter, this time to the Ephesians, Paul exhorts the imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that's something I was provoked to ponder on a couple of weeks ago. Isn't it funny? Sometimes the things God uses to speak to us. When I went to take part in a missions conference a couple of weeks ago, the last thing I expected to find was to find myself travelling ten floors in a lift with the king. That is, the king of rock and roll. It turned out that being an Elvis Presley imitator was the way that bornagainelvis.com was raising financial support for his other calling, to be a missionary and a pastor. Different, huh? Despite some minor facial differences, in his performance of Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock and Blue Suede Shoes, he was completely believable as Elvis Presley. Just as when he sang Amazing Grace, he was totally believable as a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that set me thinking. The authenticity of being Elvis didn't come from just putting on that star-spangled jacket or the white shoes, or from repeating the words of the songs. The authenticity came from an inward vibrancy, an outward demeanour, and from the very voice itself. There was just a sense that Elvis was here, and that brought people all of the missionaries, I might add, young and old, to their feet in celebration of the King of Rock. That was only achieved through much careful study of the person of Elvis, many hours of listening to the voice, and much practice of walking and singing in his shoes. If we're going to be authentic Jesus people, it's not enough to put on the jacket of Christian teaching or the shoes of Anglicanism or to repeat the words of our chosen liturgies week by week. We too must invest in studying God's word, in walking alongside Jesus through the pages of the Gospels, learning the wisdom of the first apostles through their letters, through study, prayer, and silence. We must learn to hear his voice so that we can authentically sing his song. In quiet self-reflection, 
we must listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and in humility lay at the foot of the cross the attitudes, the behaviours, the responses, the reactions, the fears, the selfish ambitions, the self-interest, the complaining. And as we do that, so we will grow in the fruits of the Spirit, in the likeness of Jesus. And as we do that, no one will be able to say of us, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. As we grow to be more like Jesus, we will, as Paul says, shine like stars in the universe.